You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of The Nightingale. Sing a song. The one for me. I wish I were on yonder hill. We don't want no trouble. That's just the way, isn't it? You don't want trouble, but sometimes trouble wants you. There I'd sit and cry my fill. Get me to the soldiers that came by this morning. It's too dangerous. Up north, they kill us. You sure you want to follow him? And every tear would turn a man. They're close. <laughs> What are you doing? Ah! I don't want no trouble. I'll sell my rock, I'll sell my wheel. Sell my only spinning wheel. You know what it's like to have a white fella take everything you have, don't you? To buy my love a sword of steel. What's your name again? Claire. I'm not your boy. I'm Mangana, the blackbird. I wish, I wish, I wish in vain. You white ones go fast, fast, fast. Get nowhere. I go slow. I wish I had my love again. The little bird thought she was going to die out there in the forest. Suddenly, she was free. All right, everyone, you were just listening to the trailer for The Nightingale, and the story is as follows. One night in 1820s Tasmania, Claire, a young Irish convict, loses everything she holds dear after her family is horrifically attacked. She's immediately driven to track down and seek revenge against a British officer who oversaw the horror. So, she enlists the service of an aboriginal tracker named Billy. Marked by trauma from his own violence-filled past, Billy reluctantly agrees to take her through the interior of Tasmania. On this brutal quest for blood, Claire gets much more than she bargained for. The film is starring Aisling Franciosi, Sam Claflin, Baikali Ganabar, Damon Harriman, Harry Greenwood, and Ewan Leslie. It is written and directed by Jennifer Kent. And join me for this podcast review, I have Dan Bayer. Good evening, everybody. And also, we have a guest for this one, freelance writer Valerie Complex. Valerie, how are you? What's up, everybody? (sighs) Ready for the discussion? It's a heavy (laughs) one. It's a really, really rough one. It's probably going to be looked upon as quite possibly... Uh, the most brutal film that we review in 2019, or at least uh, I, I kind of hope it is because I, I, I shudder to think if there's something more brutal than The Nightingale to come out later on this year. God. I mean, it could be done, but it would take a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I would. I could, I could argue that the third act of Climax at least matches it. Yeah, that's fair. I don't know. 
if I would say that it beats it, though. I will say this. I saw this film back at Sundance in January. Famously, there was somebody during the screening that apparently required medical attention. I still don't know what the story was behind that, if they, like, you know, got dehydrated, did they faint, like, did somebody think they were having, like, a stroke or something? I have no idea. I just remember there were reports and such that, like, you know, a screening had to be stopped and things like that. And this movie just kind of, like, from the time it premiered at Venice last year, it just started to build up this reputation. And Jennifer Kent had already established a reputation for herself with the 2014 horror film The Babadook, which brought her a lot of critical acclaim. I know that that movie certainly has its fans out there, so people were eagerly anticipating what her follow-up was going to be. And it is an equally horrific and brutal movie, but in a different kind of vein. This is no straight-up horror movie. This is a more serious, uh, terrorizing drama, kind of in the vein of something like a 12 Years a Slave or Schindler's List, where the violence is so realistic and brutal and just absolutely horrifying, but done still with a sensitive touch from its uh, director that tries to capture the essence of what is beautiful in such a brutal world. At least that's my interpretation of it. I don't know what either one of you think about it. Valerie, you are the guest on today's show. What was your experience, um, you know, from context standpoint with the Babadook and what did you ultimately think of the Nightingale? Uh, man, uh, what did I think? Uh, okay, so I didn't care for the Babadook either. Uh-oh. <laughs> but, oh. I, I, but I appreciated its message. I liked what Jennifer Kent was trying to say and I liked the way she said it. It just felt long and drawn out. And, mm. and I think that that's a thing of Jennifer Kent is long and drawn out viewing that feels laborious. And the Nightingale is extra because of the violence, but also the plot somewhere between the second and third act, it becomes directionless in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. The story kind of shifts. And I don't know if you know what part I'm referring to, but like it kind of tapers off and kind of goes downhill and then it turns into someone else's story. And I was like, what is going on here? Mm -hmm. And then I didn't think that we needed all that brutality, not all the brutality, because trust me, I don't mind that at all. One of my favorite Westerns is The Proposition, Mm -hmm. which is another Australian um, outback film uh, about brutality. But the, the 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 thing about this film, and I thought that the Nightingale was like the like the women's version of the proposition, and it was like then I expected it to be like okay, so you know we don't see too many things, but we know the nature of colonization, and we know that there are horrible people out there. I only needed like one rape to know this character is bad, and um. You know, they're an asshole and things like that. But then it just kept going and 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 going. And then the film kind of chokes out on its on its violent lullaby, so to speak, with the nightingale. So if I had to give it out of five stars, I'd probably give it like... We're not there yet. We're not there yet. We're going to save that for the end. (laughs) All right. Thanks. Good. Glad you caught me off. But I... um. I, I really just didn't like it. The performances are great, and Jennifer Kent is a very accomplished, 
competent, confident director, the stories, the plot just, it's not even the story, it's the plotting of the story that just makes it so tedious to get through. Um, and by the end, I didn't give a sh- can you curse on the show? Shit, yeah. <laughs> okay. Making sure. I do it all by the time. End, by the end, I didn't give a shit what the outcome was. I just wanted it to be over. Yeah, it does feel like the film holds its audience in a vice grip throughout, and it's really uncomfortable to be in constantly. And it's like, though, as if it's holding this vice grip and it is squashing the ever-living life out of you. It is painful. It is horrific. You can't even breathe. But yet, it's going to like show you these pretty images in front of you. And it's going to make you look at uh, some of these tender moments that sprinkle uh, their way throughout the story here and there. While you're just like uncomfortably still reeling from uh, the first act of the film... And it's a very interesting uh, viewing experience, or at least one that for me, um, I have not really had much of this year outside of maybe uh, Dan and I were talking the third act of uh, Climax, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's it's definitely something that is unique, and it is something that um, we'll definitely dig a little bit deeper, uh, Valerie, into some of the criticisms you brought up here, because I actually think they are founded. Um, I felt those same criticisms as well when I saw the film back in January. Uh, let's see what Dan has to say. Dan, what, what do you think uh, in terms of what the film gets right, what you think it gets wrong? What did you think of The Nightingale? I, oh boy, uh, this was one of those movies where, God, there seems to be like one every year now for the past couple years. <laughs> No, where right? I, no, where, where I get to the end, I, like the movie is done, and I physically can't move from my seat until the credits are over. Like I've never been so grateful for end credits in my life, you know. And I I agree with a lot of what you say, Valerie, especially about how it's just it, this the middle bits. It goes on for too long. I mean, how many scenes of them walking through the wilderness do we really need? Or how many fake out dream sequences do we need? I well, I honestly, I actually loved the dream sequences. Oh, really? Oh, see, I thought I thought it overplayed itself too much when it did it. I think I think doesn't it happen like three or two times? I think it was three times. Yeah, but I really liked how each of them was sort of building on the last and really subtly like thinking back on them how they're subtly pushing her towards the end point well i want to just make a comparison here really quickly because ultimately in many ways this is a revenge style film and i want to bring up another film that played at uh sundance actually in the uh, midnight section that is a movie called revenge (laughs) and i don't know how many of you saw that movie but i have not similar plot i saw it yeah, sim- similar plot to a certain extent. And that's a very, very tight movie. You know, terrible thing happens to girl protagonist. Girl protagonist takes her revenge. Blood ensues. End credits. You know, the Nightingale is trying to do a lot. It's not just trying to tell that simple of a story. It's also trying to pack in all this history. It's trying to pack in all these tie-ins to modern contemporary issues as well. And 
I think somewhere along the way, um, just like the characters are getting lost in the wilderness, I think also, too, the messaging behind the film, although I understand the intent, I think it also gets a little lost. And then it's like all that we can then think of is you put us through all of that uh, to not get the message through as clearly and succinctly as it could have been. Um, exactly. Well, I, <laughs> I, I think it's interesting. The idea, you know, the whole um, when you embark on a quest of revenge, dig two graves thing um, has sure. has kind of been done, done to death at this point. But I don't know, the cumulative impact of this movie by the time it got to the end and what happens between these two characters and how their relationship evolves and changes and what they do to and for each other. I'll admit that is beautiful. I actually really, really like that relationship a lot. Oh my God. Like, and by the end of the show, like I said, like I couldn't move from my seat and I was so struck by everything. And I wonder like, even though you know, it did really meander in the middle there. I wonder if that impact wouldn't have been quite so great without spending that amount of time with these characters and really watching them slowly peel back their layers for each other and thus for the audience. Um, well, I think the movie is is very light on revenge and very heavy on the other thing um it doesn't read as a as you would call this part of the great revenge genre it's marketed that way but that's not what this is right and i think that it's green book unchained oh god it's it's something (laughs) more like that or there's something the, the difference between this and like revenge is revenge First of all, I don't think revenge is also a revenge story. I think it's a survivalist movie uh, with revenge oh, elements. That's that's fair. Yeah. But the thing about revenge is that it has a very clear goal and it is working toward that goal. And it goes from start to finish with that goal in mind. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't mind changes. Characters change. Things change. But you got to you got to handle that. You got to handle that a little bit better mm. because. All of the, like you were mentioning before, all of these things have happened and here we are and you're like, not going to do anything? What? Then what am I sitting here for? So, but um, I, I actually like that, that, and the, the merits of this uh, in this particular movie, given how it begins, can be debated. But I kind of liked that it was essentially a revenge movie that comes to the conclusion that revenge is incredibly unsatisfying and that it's about it's it starts off about this you know revenge rape revenge thing and then becomes something that's more about letting love like the general love back into your life after experiencing terrible trauma well it also brings up a lot of interesting questions too as to maybe there's a desire to want to feel again or start again, but can someone ever really after going through well, something that's like the that? Thing, like, and I agree with you. I think that there's there's a thing there's things about love and, and is revenge really the case? 
if I think had it for me, had that been more clearly defined, I could have got with it. I, I would have gotten with it. I'd have been like, you know what? That's kind of cool. But they made it seem like the character was becoming small again. And then after this thing happens, huh. it turns into someone else's revenge story. Yeah. And and I'm glad the, I like the way that it ended, that we didn't see uh, certain things on screen. And we, you know, we were just kind of left with things. But the back and forthness to the town, you know, yeah. it was just like, come on now. Like, is something going to happen? Is she going to do something, anything? I remember sitting in the theater and I remember thinking to myself, this ending better blow me away. Like it better make everything <laughs> worth it. And you know, I, that's that's it. I think that's it. I think it was sort of a roller coaster. And then you get to this ending like, okay, well, this ending is going to be this and that. And you get there and you're like, okay, well, I get it. But um, that's it. It goes out with a whimper instead of a bang, basically. Uh, so I haven't written a review yet, but Pretty much my, my the title of my review is going to be like the nightingale chokes on its violet lullaby. Because I feel like that's what happened. Mm. Uh, it kind of just chokes up at the end. And where I feel like the Babadook really did have a strong ending, this did not. You know, and I, and I often wonder, too, if the reason why the movie's messaging is not coming like across as well as it should. Cause like I said, I think it's very clear, especially in Jennifer Kent's interviews, she's made it very known that this was my intent. This is like what I wanted the movie to be. And I can see it in there. Like I, I like I know it's there. Um, it's just not coming through for everybody. And you're getting a lot of polarizing reactions to the movie as a result. Some people are, you know, latching onto it. Others, whether it's because of personal experience or just uh, taste in general, whatever it is, you know, people are having different responses to the movie. And so she's a very, very, you know, she's a very tough uh, director. She can handle it. She can handle the blowback, the criticisms and things like that. And she's going to be, I think, completely fine after this. I think that she really, really wanted to make something that felt important uh, not just in terms to, you know, Australian, uh, you know, history, but also to something that could tie a little bit maybe into today. And I don't want to like boil this down to um, everyone. It's like basically everyone versus the straight white man. Like the straight white man sucks. You know, I don't want to boil it down <laughs> it to that. Like, man, it really does. Absolute shit since the 1800s like, is basically the thesis statement of this movie. Um. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> The film still has the film still has blind spots. Like um, I, I get what Jennifer Kent was trying to do and what she was trying to introduce, and I really like the fact that the main character, her and Billy, I believe his name was, yeah. they didn't really get along, and she's actually really an asshole, like to Billy. Yeah, and it's like okay, well, um, mm. these people aren't great, and this bitch, she's not great either. So I really actually like that. I just I, I'm kind of over these narratives where we have people writing fantasy almost it's like, OK, I'm you know, I'm a racist, but I'm going to change through this experience. And, you know, it's not that that doesn't happen, but I feel like the likelihood of that happening during that period was kind of unrealistic. Just to be clear. Are you talking about you're talking about Claire's perspective, right? And in her relationship with Billy? 
Right. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, I think you need that. And it, it does suck that it's kind of like simple. Like, okay, obviously they're going to start not really liking each other reluctantly going on this journey together and by the end oh, we're going to learn something from one another and you know we're going to also um you know develop uh, compa- like compassionate feelings towards one another because we've been on this journey we've been through some shit you know mm-hmm. like i get i get that and i understand how that can also be boiled down to maybe um some simplistic uh plotting here uh yeah, I, I will. I will say this. I will say this. That didn't bother me so much because I actually, you know, in a movie where, that is so incredibly bleak and dark, um, the bright spots like that came as just a welcome reprieve for me because I think the the thing that the film kind of misjudges maybe a little bit here is how thick and how heavy they lay on after he's already done. The most despicable act that any villain in 2019 will do in a in a movie this year. God. They have seen after scene after scene every time Sam Claflin is on screen of him just being the biggest asshole in the world. And I don't mean asshole like an annoying standpoint. Actually, <laughs> asshole is probably not even the right word. He is one step away from the fucking devil. <laughs> he He's basically... Uh, a mustache twirling villain without a mustache. You know what he is? He is a wolf in sheep's clothing. He looks like this pretty, yeah. sexy young boy that can seduce you, and he looks like he would be a straight up good guy. And I think that's part of the thing that Kent is going for here, a little bit, is that he's made to look like this almost like knight in shining armor type of guy. But really, he is just the devil. He he he's. I mean, the, it was God. I. I have to say, this is like is the theme for me this year with like guys and roles like this who will just like I'm thinking also of Jack Rayner in Midsummer who will just never get the credit they deserve for portraying a very very specific type of toxic masculinity perfectly on screen. I just like I kept watching Sam Claflin in this movie and like, Jesus is ridiculously unnecessary, but he absolutely has this guy pinned to the wall, nailed dead to rights. The, the rage and the roiling insecurity from not that comes from like his completely unfed, but also unchecked ambition it's the best performance of his career, it's I think, hands down. The best it is, and that's and that's the crazy thing because you know Sam Kaplan has gotten on by playing nice guys, or yeah. good guys, or <laughs> yeah. the only thing that he's deep that has in any way deviated from that is when he played in the Hunger Games uh, series, and that was sort of different. And then it was right back to the same stuff. And this is like way out of character for him, and I actually yeah. liked his performance. I, I just like wish it didn't get to a point in the in the screenplay where, um, I hope I hope this isn't spoilers, but let's put it this way: any like it got to a point where any interaction that he had with anybody, I'm like, oh, Sam's gonna kill him. Sam's gonna kill him at some point. Like like the Sam's just gonna kill everybody <laughs> at a certain point, you know? And that and that's exactly what he does. It's like, you know, it's like, it's not even so much, oh, you annoyed me, I'm going to kill you. It, it might as well just be, hello, sir, how are you today? Boom, I'm going to shoot you because you even just spoke to me. <laughs> pretty much. <Yeah. laughs> That's pretty much it. And I feel like there are people like that, but 
in a film that is already so heavy what i i don't know what that's what i mean it it, it laid itself on i think too thick like i like and this is what i mean like when i say like with sam claflin's character great performance um a villain that we truly truly hate and we really really want to see him just get it so badly (laughs) um which is good but at a certain point especially because as the things that we're talking about in terms of the pacing of the film by the time, like, we get towards the end, it's just, like, enough already. Like, I get it. This guy's the worst. You don't need to keep showing me scene after scene of him just being the worst, you know? Shave 15 minutes off this movie, for the love of God. That's what I said. That's what I said. It's like, after the first thing, you know, in the beginning, with what happens with Claire, like, we see, you know, what kind of guy this is, you know? So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's enough. In my opinion, and don't and don't get me wrong, I like brutality, but you gotta you gotta use it right. Yeah, I do think that uh, Ken's uh, way of filming that scene in particular, um, to God. me, was uh, something that was actually very unique and something that I felt like I really hadn't seen in other films that have portrayed stuff like that before. Um, I got to give it to her just as a, as a visual storyteller and how she chooses to shoot this movie, you know, like things like the four by three aspect ratio, for example, um, and how she opted not to go with widescreen to capture, um, the landscape and how she wanted it to mirror, um, the constrictiveness of the, uh, the character's point of view and also, um, the claustrophobia and the uncomfortableness for the audience and like just all these different reasonings behind why she chooses to do what she chooses to do in this. It's um, something that I can greatly admire, even if I have absolutely no desire to ever want to watch it again. The the use of extreme close up on acing Franciosi's face in this is just killer yeah i i mean it it, and it's hard i think for filmmakers to do that because you're really resting it all like you are betting everything on the performer but like holy crap does she deliver well aisling i think Ah. i think this is going to break her out i think she's going to get a lot offered to her after this. I was getting major Florence Pugh and Lady Macbeth vibes throughout this whole movie from her. Like, she is breakout star just waiting to happen and like, lord, all she has to go through in this movie. I I can't imagine what it must have been like to show up on set every day and have to put yourself into the mindset of this character. I was actually going to use that phrase there dan because i said it last year a lot about tony collette and hereditary mm. i think it's worse here for aisley oh god i i can't even imagine um how she got into character every single day on set i i, I can't <laughs> yeah I, I it's really difficult to, and well the, i imagine a lot of people look at a lot of actresses looked at the script and said no yeah probably oh, I, you know yeah. i wouldn't be surprised so you have to make sure that in that case you find an actress that is not only down with it, but can deliver it. Yeah. And Jennifer Kent got very lucky. Mm-hmm. Because this could have been very, very bad. 
Yeah. In terms of acting. And Bay Kali uh, Ganambar, this is his first performance in in anything. He's out of out of the two. I think he's the one that's going to get the nomination. If you if you ask me, out of the two of them, I think he's the one. That's going to end up with them. I mean, yeah, he could definitely get some breakout notices, I think, too, from uh, some critics groups for sure. I could see that. Mm -hmm. He'll get my vote. (laughs) You know, someone who's having uh, quite a year, actually, because he's playing Charles Manson in both Mindhunter and in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. uh, Damon Harriman, I thought, did a very, very great job in this, too. And uh, credit to the entire cast, honestly, because no role in this movie is easy. Um, everything in this is definitely a hardship for everyone involved. So I, I give a lot of credit to Jennifer, to this cast, um, to the technical work that's on display. I mean, the cinematography in this, even though it isn't, you know, as we said before, like a widescreen shot film, uh, some of the shots in this are still like breathtakingly gorgeous, um, for a four by three aspect ratio movie. Yeah. Everything that, about the film is ace except the goddamn plot. Like, <laughs> I, I got I I I have to say like I really I really actually like the plot. I I I do kind of wish that again that you know they had shaved some of the middle section where they're going after the group of soldiers. But like I really love how this is sort of using it's using our hunger for violence and that kind of satisfaction against us all the way through because mm-hmm. there's that there's that turning point for her in i think it's actually probably exactly the midway point of the film where she thinks she does what she has wanted all along and the camera just lingers on her face and she looks at what she's done and she can't take it Right. And I remember that. Yeah. From, and forever after that, I'm like, oh, like this isn't a revenge movie. This is about overcoming trauma. And it sort of Trojan horses all these other things into what into something that we thought was going to be very different. And the, I really appreciate when a film can do that and do it well. And I really think that Jennifer Kent does that in this movie. Now that you say that, it changes my perspective on the movie a little bit. Um, that's something that I hadn't thought about because, again, I had gone in uh, mm-hmm. to the film thinking that it was about revenge. And sometimes I let my expectations yeah. of what I think what I think I'm going to see cloud the judgment of what I'm actually what I've actually seen. And I just wish the message of overcoming trauma was more explicit. Because then that's something I could have really, really gotten behind and promoted. Um, And, uh, uh, you know, aside from it, you know, just being labeled a rape revenge movie, which that's not what this is. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely not. And that kind of makes me mad (laughs) because there are so many films that don't do as well as they should or aren't received as well as they should be because the marketing is disgusting. Deceptive? Not even deceptive in this case because I I, I kind of get it. This is a hard movie to market. <laughs> it is. It's 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 you know there's a full range of things that are going on in the film that just that it's hard to discover under all of what's already happening. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean that does change my perspective a little bit, but I still 
don't like the film as much as everybody else did. And you know what? Like, I'm actually just I'm I'm just proud enough to hear that, you know, whenever we have thoughtful discussion on this podcast, I love when somebody says, you know, I, I didn't think of it that, that way, you know, and I just had that happen recently with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where mm-hmm. after we recorded our review and we were done and I put it out <laughs> to the world, it was a little too late, but I did eventually have this like dawning realization of, oh, I didn't think of it that way because I had too much going on in my head while I was watching it. And, you know, like you're talking about there, Valerie, these expectations or preconceived notions and so on and so forth. And one thing I want to say specifically about this film as a re- in regards to that, I do have an interview up with Jennifer Kent. And there is a message that she did put into the interview that I just want to relay to everyone right now, which is the violence in this movie is indeed horrible. I wouldn't believe the hype so much that that these are her words she tells us to not believe the hype in terms of the violence definitely go in knowing that there's going to be some really horrific stuff for sure but i would uh say uh you know because she she basically says that there's also uh beauty and there's compassion here within the story and i do think that it is present so it's not like a complete torture fest where uh you're watching something like you know, Human Centipede or what is that movie called? A Slavian film or something like that? What's that movie called? Oh, a Serbian? Serbian. Serbian film. You know, it's not like that. There is a degree of art and thoughtfulness that is put into this. Um, But uh, a word of caution, though, in this regard, uh, and this is something that she echoed as well. If you have had previous trauma inflicted upon you before, um, maybe then in that case, uh, I would caution uh, everybody from maybe watching this because uh, what is shown in this movie is indeed uh, pretty graphic and it really, really puts you into the character's uh, headspace while it happens. It will trigger you. It yeah. probably triggered yeah. a lot of non-victims yep. too. Yeah. yeah. Oh my yeah. God. I what, So I saw this a week ago in the screening room in New York and it, there was maybe 10 people there in this screening. But out of 10 people in, in that scene, I have never heard so loud a collective gasp as came from these 10 people. Like it, it, it is like brutal. Doesn't even begin to cover it. It is beyond that because not only what happens but how how it happens yeah it and the, I, oh yeah God, the sound mix on this movie it, like i shouldn't be surprised because the Bobby Duke also had great sound mixing but like holy fuck the sound mixing in this movie is incredible and she's very very proud of the movie and she has every right to be um i think um, and I love that she's uncompromising in her vision for it. Uh, Valerie, we are now at a point where you can reveal uh, your uh, grade now. Uh, but we're, before you do so, if you have any final thoughts on uh, The Nightingale, uh, please feel free to let us know. I think it's good that I had this discussion because I'm definitely seeing The Nightingale in a different way now. Um, where it's about overcoming trauma. And this is going to sound super insane, but I feel like I need to revisit it again. Uh, (laughs) Because if I see it from that perspective, 
then I might like the film more than I do even after you having said that. So um, am I going to revisit it? Probably not right now. <laughs> I, I had a chance to revisit it and I sent Dan instead. I was like, I don't know if I can do it again. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to wait a while on this one. <laughs> right. Cause with all that is happening in the world, I think I need a break. But um, if I was to look at it as overcoming karma, I would like it a little bit more. But for now I'm going to give it like a two. Mm, eh, I guess I'll give it 2.5, maybe three out of five because everything in the movie is fantastic except that plot yeah and that pacing but it really if if it wasn't for that we would really have like the perfect movie so i'm gonna not be unfair i'm gonna give it the three that it deserves and on the uh, nbp scale that does translate because we we do out of 10 here that translates to a six uh which is cool all good um, I really, really appreciate that. And uh, thank you, Valerie, for that perspective as well. Because, you know, I, I kind of figured that when we started this, I, you know, knew we were going to have a wide range of opinion about this one. Because how can you not, right? It's a very right. deeply uh, triggering film in a lot of ways. And, you know, depending on, like I said, uh, personal experience or even lack of personal experience, even um, this movie has the ability to really dig underneath your skin and you know bring out a lot of uh, passionate uh responses from people so mm-hmm. dan anything that we did not talk about with the nightingale that you want to bring up and what would be your grade out of 10 uh, uh, i think i've said everything that i need to say hey i the, to me this movie is just a really stunning use of the tools of cinema of sound and image to put you right into the middle of a character's lived experience. Um, it's definitely not a, an experience I want to go through again anytime soon. Uh, but it's really, really well done. You know, some cutting in the middle section that might make (laughs) it tighter would probably help. But as it is, I I am at a very solid 8 out of 10 with this. And I don't want to sound like broken record here, uh, but I will say that it is a movie that mixes the beautiful with the brutal. I think that there are some really humanistic moments in this movie, uh, both for good and for bad as well. And I think it reveals a lot about our nature as human beings. I think it taps into something uh, that is very primal and it's a very angry movie as well. And there's so much that comes through in these performances, a very, very wide range of acting from this ensemble that had to really, I think, go through a tremendous amount of hell uh, to give us what we got with this one. The technicals are all great, like Dan said. However, I am also going to point out, yeah, the editing, you know, this is a movie that it's a not a two and a half hour long movie. It's a two hours and 16 minutes long. And it feels every bit of that. Yeah. When you have that moment in the first act, it really does at that point put you in a mind space of, I just want this to be over. So once you're like thinking that every single minute after that scene is just you know, more and more of you thinking, I just want this to be over. 
I just want this to be over. And so as the movie keeps on laying on more horrific violence, more examples of Sam Claflin's character's uh, brutality, it, it starts to become, you know, it starts to get to a point where, uh, like you said, you start questioning the the message of the movie. And things start to get muddled a little bit too much there. Right. I do think that if it were a tightly, more tightly edited movie, and I understand why it's not. I understand that there needs to be a bit of rumination, contemplation, and meditation on what is being said here and what the characters are going through. And I think that does pay off to some degree, but I also think it makes the film worse to some degree as well. So... There is a mixture there, and everyone's opinion will vary. Um, I will comfortably complete the trifecta here with a six, an eight. I will go in the middle as a seven. <laughs> now, Valerie, you brought up before that you believe uh, Bekali uh, Ganambar, who plays Billy in this movie, uh, might be up for uh, possibly some awards consideration. I do believe that there is a discussion to be had here about the merits of this film in an awards uh, sense. Uh, I'm of the mindset personally that this is the kind of movie that shows up at like, you know, critics groups, um, a breakout award here or there for Aisling, maybe mm-hmm. Bacali, um, you know, maybe they alternate. Uh, then Indie Spirits roll around and Jennifer Kent gets maybe like a Best Director nomination and things of that nature. But I don't think this is coming anywhere near the Academy Awards, like at all. Oh, God, no. Not even not even at, at one performance, not even one, not no. one. I don't think so. Yeah, I think if I think I think if Claire, the character Claire, were played by a more known actress that we could all point oh, to well, as I'll, like, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. as someone like you know, oh my God, she is giving such a brave performance, and then the tabloids would have like a field day, and they'd be writing mm-hmm. all these. You know, yeah. pieces Me too about articles. Oh yeah. my god! <laughs> <laughs> I think then, yes, you know, and it's interesting too because, um, you know, like I feel like Jennifer Lawrence uh, had her moment with Mother uh, two years ago, where she kind of put herself through hell and back in a performance that's uh, tapping into something similar as this at times, but that didn't go anywhere. You know, uh, Tony Collette. Also tapped into something last year, and they wouldn't touch that either. It's 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 a but very you know sad. Why they wouldn't touch Hereditary. That's not really a fair. I mean, that's genre bias. That's that's yeah really, yeah. Oh, that's exactly what genre it is. Bias. I mean, like when word gets out that something is a downer or incredibly difficult to watch, then people, Academy people, tend to say, "Well, I'm not watching that one. I'm not wasting my time with that one because I it, see." I, difficult watches they don't like right. to be uncomfortable it's a shame too because then you get to like the thanksgiving holiday and everybody's got yeah. their stack of screeners and you know they've got mitch and mo over for turkey and it's like ah mitch what do you want us to put in the dvd player ah yeah put in <laughs> green book and you know off to the races we go <laughs> yeah you know? nobody's putting in the nightingale at thanksgiving dinner exactly really sick sense of humor oh god maybe yeah. maybe maybe ellie roth uh maybe we'll watch oh Rain Gale <laughs> over uh thanksgiving you know he seems like the type <laughs> heartwarming tale of finding common ground uh but i but but you know what the most important thing is beyond the wards consideration uh is that uh <sighs> I just have so much respect for Jennifer Kent, and she's got a tremendous, a tremendous amount of 
courage, I think, to make a movie like this and to stand up to any critics and say, hey, you know what? If it ain't for you, it ain't for you. I made something that I think is really important and this is the movie I wanted to make. I admired mm-hmm. them. I admired the hell out of her for that. All power to her. Seriously. Because she is a producer, the screenwriter, and the director of this movie. She probably had to be. Yeah, yeah. Because I can imagine like nobody wanting to go near it. I could imagine that too. Sure. Especially with all that's going on in the Me Too era, which, you know, I love the Me you know, I love the Me Too era, but the media has been sort of irresponsible with reporting things and especially when it comes to films, like any female led movie now is now a part of the Me Too era and it's like this is not the way that you should be reporting about certain films like that. Cause yeah. Yeah. So good for her. All right. Uh, Valerie, tell everyone where they can find you on the internet. Yeah, I am on Twitter at Valerie complex or one word V A L E R I E complex. And I am on Instagram at Valerie underscore complex. My website is under construction. Uh, it'll just be ValerieComplex.com. But you can still take a look for updates. And I really, really appreciate you coming back on the show. You're always somebody that we enjoy having here. And we enjoy also our uh, interactions with you on Twitter. So everyone that's listening right now, definitely check out Valerie's work. Phenomenal writer. Excellent voice out there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you once again. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Dan, where can I find you on the Internet? You can find me on Twitter at Dance and Dan on Film. And you can find me in Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our review of The Nightingale here on the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, Acast, CastBox, and also on Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support which you can also lend over to us at Patreon, where for $1 minimum a month, you can get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday.